Coming up, Guy Ritchie and Charlie Hunnam on the horrors of a press day. And uneasy photographer Chris Buck stops by. I think the best ideas still come from the messed up parts of you, you know, your like quirks and, you know, your issues. You put your you put your issues in the pictures, they'll be interesting. Guy Ritchie leaves the room and Johnny Nasty shows up. Yeah. When I photographed Obama, you know, it was a four and a half minute shoot, but we did three setups and they've been shot about 30 frames. In the red carpet last night. I tell you, I felt soulless after that. Mm. You know, that's a fucking fine line. I'm in for 10 minutes, mate, and after 10 minutes, get me off there because it takes me hours to recover. Most people are some kind of version of their public selves when you meet them privately, whether it's a musician or an actor or even like a director. They're, they're sort of, you're getting... You're getting like a version of that. I can see the curse of directors wanting to be cool. Someone asked her, why do you have that picture of Donald Trump? And she said, I couldn't believe it. She said something like, I respect the office. <laughs> How old is she? Seven. <laughs> <laughs> Hey folks, welcome to the House of Krause. I'm Richard Krause. A little bit later on, Chris Buck will be here. Chris Buck is a photographer. His new book is a behemoth. It's called Uneasy. It's a big coffee table book. If you don't recognize the name, keep this in mind. Over the last 30 years, almost any picture you've seen of almost any famous person that wasn't taken by Annie Leibovitz or maybe Terry O'Neill was taken by Chris Buck. We'll get to all of that stuff a little bit later on. First up though, I want to introduce you to Guy Ritchie and Charlie Hunnam. Now you probably don't need an introduction to either of those people. Guy Ritchie, of course, the director of Lock, Stock and Two Smoking Barrels, the Sherlock Holmes movies, not the ones with Benedict Cumberbatch, but the ones with Robert Downey Jr. Charlie Hunnam from the Sons of Anarchy, they were around visiting the House of Christ, talking about their new movie called King Arthur, Legend of the Sword. Now, I had the chance to do two separate interviews with them. One was a TV interview, and it started off like all these TV interviews do, a bit of chit-chat as they adjust the cameras. I'm taller than everybody else that does this, so they have to always mess around with the cameras a little bit. So we're sitting there, we're talking, it seems to go okay, and I ask my first question. I've only got four minutes. I ask my first question, and Charlie Hunnam responds really enthusiastically. It was a question about the movie Excalibur, which is kind of a precursor to their King Arthur movie. He responds in a very big way. He's uh, talking about when he was a kid and how much he loved the movie, all that kind of stuff. Guy Ritchie, though, I could feel was just disconnecting. He disengaged at that point, and for the next, you know, three and a half minutes, uh, we just kind of joked and jollied our way through the interview, and uh, then it was over. Now, that happens with these television interviews. They're fast. They're down and dirty. If the first question doesn't land, you're probably not going to get too far uh, in the next three minutes with anyone. You're not going to probably win them back over. Anyway, cut to half an hour later. I'm to do a print interview with them. Much different thing. It's uh, in a, a room with no cameras. It's just the three of us, maybe a publicist, sitting in the background. And we're talking about the film. But as I came in... Charlie Hunnam sort of leapt up and said, I'm glad we can make amends. It seemed like you wanted to have a proper conversation and we were just having a bit of a jolly up. You'll hear all this in a little while. But the interesting thing to me was to see kind of the, the yin and yang of a press day. The yin is Guy Ritchie. 
the darker side of doing a press day. He kind of didn't want to be there. I think he's probably uh, been working on this movie for so long. He's thought about every possible permutation of question that could possibly ever be asked. And he's been asked them over the last couple of months, probably, that he's been doing press for this. And this week will only intensify because he's probably doing 300 interviews in the days leading up to the release of the film. So there's nothing new to ask him. And you can kind of feel the weight of that on him. Uh, ask him something else outside the movie and he kind of perks up a little bit, but he didn't seem to enjoy the process that much. Now, maybe it's also because he's a director and directors like to be in charge. They like to be in command. And in that situation, he wasn't really in command. Anyway, Charlie Hunnam on the other side of the coin was lovely. He was uh, pleasant. He was keen. You know, he wanted to talk about the film, but also talk about the process of you know, doing these interviews and stuff. So anyway, I thought I would present the entire unedited interview for you from the, the time that I walked into the room until the time that I, I left the room. And you will see the change. You will see, or you won't see, but you'll hear the moment that Guy Ritchie kind of unfolds his arms and sort of gets a little bit more interested in the whole process. But it's kind of an interesting look at what it's like to do these. And I know that people will say, well, they're getting paid a lot of money. They should just suck it up and do the press and, and not really think about it too much, not worry about it too much. But I have a feeling that in Guy Ritchie's case, he's someone who is always looking forward to the next project. Once King Arthur was done and signed off on and you know then the whole publicity machine cranks up he's probably finished with that it's a years-long process for him he's now thinking about the next project so to be kind of forced artificially to go back and look at this thing that he's just spent years of his life on probably isn't the most appealing way to spend a couple of weeks or a few weeks or a couple of months whatever it's been for him anyway i like them both don't get me wrong here i thought that guy ritchie is an intense character uh, who doesn't take any nonsense and, you know, sort of wears it on his face when he feels that things aren't going well. But when things are going well, you'll hear. You'll hear in the interview how uh, he seems to enjoy himself a bit more. And Charlie Hunnam, being a performer, I think was there to kind of, you know, make sure that everything gets smoothed over. Anyway, this is me walking into a room after having a bit of a TV jolly up. Guy Ritchie and Charlie Hunt. <laughs> you know what? I'm glad we can make amends. I feel like we, we got a bit wobbly at that. We've been doing a lot of interviews together, and sometimes it seems like you wanted to have a proper conversation, and we were having a bit of a jolly up. So oh, hopefully no, we can we can take this a bit more seriously, but maybe not. No promises. Maybe not. We'll see what happens. Listen, I know that by the time you hit a city like Toronto, that you've done... 5,000 interviews and you've been asked the same questions over and over and over again and I get it. This is my seventh consecutive week of doing press because yeah. I had two films come out yeah, back to yeah, back so this is literally yeah, yeah. my seventh week of, of being on the road doing press so uh, and, yeah, and, I'm getting I a bit cross-eyed at this you're holding point. Up. You're holding up. Oh, thank you. Uh, do you like doing it? I don't get the impression that you like doing I, it. I've got somewhere between 10 and 15 minutes left in me today. Right. And if it doesn't round up, then it's the, it, everything starts going backwards. Yeah. And then it's, it's never mind diminishing returns. 
it starts becoming unpleasant for everybody. Guy Richie leaves the room and Johnny Nasty shows up. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, Charlie and I were having. I, I much prefer doing it with Charlie actually yeah. because you know you can fifty percent of the time you can sort of move walk out of this sort of thing. Uh, I have to tell you that there's a there's a period of the day that I do enjoy doing it because as these interviews gone on, actually I say this even more with Charlie in the room that. We, we are investigating certain components of this film that um, is to recognise the pattern, even in the process of what we're doing now, with the narrative itself, with other narratives. And there's an exploration that takes place in... Um, in well, I was looking for... I don't know if the right word there. In exploring um, the process. Mm-hmm. And so it's often... For you know, two hours, three hours uh, in a day for not too long, then I can I can get, get something back from the process, and I enjoy the process yeah. as a catharsis, really. And you can, particularly in long form uh, interviews, you can start discovering stuff yourself, and that's you know that's interesting. Well, typically the interviews that I do are like an hour long for a TV show that I do here, and for a radio show that I do here. TV interviews like we just did at four minutes. It's unsatisfying for, every, for everybody. No. I think everybody and walks away with kind of a weird feeling. You do, right. and we both know why we're doing it. However, I'm, I become, let, I mean, the red carpet last night, I tell you, I felt soulless after that. Mm. You know, that's a fucking fine line. I, I'm in for 10 minutes, mate, and after 10 minutes, get me off there because it takes me hours to recover. Right. You know, I just, it's just like, it's a dog and pony show. And it's we're not here for the dog and pony show. Although I do say we work so hard to try to make something of value in our jobs, and I just try to keep in in clear perspective that this is our opportunity to get this thing out that yeah. we've 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 put a lot of heart and soul and blood, sweat, and tears into. And so, you know, in that regard, I try to remind myself of that and try to take it seriously because, you know, the. The, the hope is that you know you we don't make these things to to live to to live on in obscurity. We make them with the hope that people will see them, and this is one of the ways in which we can help manifest that. Well, there's a lot of noise out there. Is there a lot of noise? Well, there's a lot of noise. Oh, there, there is a lot of noise. Yeah, there's no, a lot no, of noise. No, no. There is a lot of noise. There's a lot of you know, yeah. and you got to cut through somehow. You do. And, yeah. And, you know, as because uh, it, it, it's weird. It's a contract. I show up. I'll write about your movie. I'll, I'll put you on TV. You say something interesting, and everyone walks away happy, right? Yeah. But but I get it. You know, I, I absolutely get it. But uh, but I appreciate. And, and there's somewhere. There's a sweet spot in there somewhere, isn't yeah. there? Mm, yeah. There is. Yeah, yeah. But congratulations on it. Thank congratulations you. on it. Like um, a couple of things we we didn't get to in the TV interview. Uh, the music. Mm-hmm. Tell me about using the music to set the, the tone here because your films have always been uh, really interesting to listen to as well as, as to watch. And I think music is a big part of it. Do you, tell me about the process of, of getting this music together and, and of, like, is there music that you listen to kind of on set? I know Ken Russell, I interviewed Ken Russell one time and when he was filming a movie called The Devils, he used to play The Rites of Spring as loud as humanly possible uh, on the set just to get people sort of in the frame of mind of what the feel that he wanted. Any of that with you? No. (laughs) Um, uh, However, a lot of the former, not the latter, um, example or question, 
the music I, I think is fundamental and I take music very seriously um, and I started this score three years ago and I was very definitive about exactly what it was yeah. that I wanted from the score and really it was a question of trying to install that confidence in the composer who invariably makes things much more complicated than they need to be um, my job is to simplify, simplify, simplify to the point where I just get the essence of the music across, the essence of the rhythm across. Then my next concern is is that how do we make, how do we bridge the gap between historical, traditional King Arthur and contemporary, fresh, um, sensational uh, King Arthur? And I found the most efficient route to do that is through music, at least initially. So some of the songs we use are a thousand years old, um, which we resurrected through law. And and then to give a contemporary twist to that, make them feel robust enough and make them feel aggressive enough and make them feel musical enough, if you will, and just to bring them from a thousand years ago into... This, this current environment and then thereby marry the disparity between a thousand years of historical poetry if you will yeah mm-hmm. because it, it does I didn't know the songs were were ancient I thought that they were that it was all uh, new music actually written for this and but you get a sense of Time. I remember going to the Vatican and just seeing Vaticano 2000 or something, and it just built me with this kind of awe that something was that old and still exists. And I kind of got that feeling from the music here that it felt ancient but very modern at the same time, which I guess is kind of the point of this whole film, is to take this this legend that we're familiar with, the Arthurian legend, and bring it up into modern day in a way that today's audiences will fully embrace. Mm. As for an actor, tell me about playing a character that we all know something about, but you have to reinvent. Is he a superhero for today? Uh, I certainly didn't look at him like that. I I was much more interested in actually the opposite, looking at the everyman and trying to identify the things that we could put into him that interested us in life and explore some of those themes that would give some substance but also be, you know, relatable and accessible to, to a younger generation. I mean, I think that historically Arthur's always been played as the nobleman and to play him as the everyman who is has this grand destiny thrust upon him and of course then has a, 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 an instinct to reject it. The conversations that um, grew for, with Guy and I around the the the, the origin of that rejection, the reason for that rejection became very interesting, exciting, and allowed us to put a lot of the truths of our own journey into this, because it really is the journey of every man. As Guy said, it's the basic journey of the, the most, the more primitive self to, uh, you know, the journey of ascension to the, the high, the hopefully the higher the self best version of ourselves. Why do you think that there's, you know, a definitive version of Robin Hood, probably Errol Flynn is a definitive version of Robin Hood, and there's a definitive Wizard of Oz, and there's that, but I don't think, unless I'm in, I mean, there's Excalibur, but I don't feel that's sort of the definitive version. Uh Why is this story that we all know, uh, why hasn't there been one until now, (laughs) do you think? Um, 
I don't really know other than what one of the theories that we have is that for screen it's a very very difficult story to tell uh, and do justice to all of the nuances of the story which is why I think um, Guy was so smart in deciding only to tell the first chapter I mean it is as you know a very long and sprawling epic tale and to, to, to distill that down to two hours really it's impossible to do it justice so you know if we're lucky enough to find an audience with this thing and there's an appetite then we would be delighted to go and, and tell the rest of the story was the first cut three and a half hours I'd heard something like that and is it kind of uh, you know I know as a writer I always find that you know I'll write something and it's you know one my last book was about half as long again as it should have been tough to get that down though you're killing stuff that you love you're killing your baby as yeah. you call it did you find that in the editing process here I do but I learned um, long ago that infanticide was the only way to move forward because <laughs> um, you're going to pay and you might as well pay now rather than pay later before yeah. it's too late so and I don't I like creating stuff anyway so I've had the privilege of creating stuff then if I have to get rid of it, then that's, uh, that's secondary. But what's primary is actually the creation of it in the first place. That's really where the pleasure lies. Um, so I, I'm ruthless with getting rid of stuff because I know my, my brain can do the arithmetic quite quickly. If I'm sitting there in an audience, with an audience and I'm going, oh God, I just wish this was moving quicker. This is, you just, why? If you can say it in one word, why use a sentence? Right. And I, I can be quite ruthless in that respect about massacring my own work. But really, I don't end up massacring it. I end up concertinaing it, <laughs> contracting it. Yeah, yeah. So I try and keep all the information in there that I've shot, but I want to get to the point and the essence of what it is we're trying to do as quickly as possible because that's the difference to me between being entertaining and engaging and not right. it's a little more painful for the actors I think yeah, maybe so, yeah. you know it's 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 the area it's the it's the necessity to be very it, it creates the necessity to be very judicious in the choices you make with working with filmmakers because of course we are not part of the process where you see why those decisions are being made and are able to reconcile why things that are beloved on set or that we had you know they felt most proud of end up on the cutting room floor and particularly I, I gotta say that was that's the one area of working in television that I found I, I couldn't wrap my head around the the somewhat arbitrary nature of having to cut to time right. where whole storylines and wonderful scenes are cut just because now it's time to sell a bag of Doritos and cut to commercial break <laughs> that that would you know, it was a heavy cross to bear for me. But it's an important point because this has to do with this, something we've been talking about recently, which is frequency. If an actor is sympathetic um, and in uh, affiliation with a similar frequency, then I think an actor, you know, Charlie liked my early work, and the fact that he liked my early work meant that it was likely that he and I would be on the same frequency. Right. Um, now, that makes it, in my opinion, I, all of the most successful actors I know have chosen directors that they can relate to. And that fundamental decision to me is the most important decision, both for an actor and for a director. If you have a shorthand and a frequency, thereby the actor isn't exposed to all the 
nosebleeds yeah. of having their work uh, assaulted um, because they're in frequency with the the creative mind that's at the top of that pyramid and thereby they go oh right I see I've got why you got rid of that because it works for the greater it works for the whole picture not just the small picture however if you're not in frequency with your director then that can lead to all sorts of trouble because you're now uh, at arm's length with your vision and his vision who wants to get in that mess I'm constantly baffled by why actors work with uh, filmmakers that they're not sure about mm. Well, you end up being Adrian Brody on the red carpet for the thin red line, thin blue line. And uh, uh, you go and see the movie and you realize you've shot for six months on it and you're not in it anymore. That's what happened to him, apparently. Oh, is that right? Yeah, yeah. And Terrence Malick. You know, Sean Penn shot for uh, The Book of Life for six or eight months. He has one line. The Tree of Life. The Tree of Life, yeah. Yeah. And has has one or two lines in the film. Yeah. Yeah. And that's just, you know, he creates these collages you know of films in the in, sure. the, uh, in the editing room and sometimes that, uh, you know, that might have been exacerbated significantly by the um, 35 minute origin of life sequence in the middle of the film that could arguably have uh, been truncated significantly I went to the premiere of that movie yeah it's I have said it, I, uh, Terrence Malick, I'm a big fan of Terrence yeah, Me Malick. too. And, you know, Days of Heaven, Badlands. Badlands. But you know, I also liked the um, New World. So uh, that with Colin Farrell. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I really yeah. liked that. And yeah. I was surprised. I was going through DVDs on a Sunday at the time. And I was like, oh, next one, next one. And that suddenly came on. I didn't look at who made it. And I hadn't heard about it. And I liked Colin Farrell too. I came on and thought, oh, this is interesting. This is interesting. 20 minutes in, I'm going through all the DVDs to find out. And then, bosh, there it was, Terrence Malick. Right. So he, you know, he can speak to you. Yeah. He really can speak to you. Tree, Tree of Life didn't speak to me. Well, I wonder how it is that the guy makes two of the greatest movies in the 1970s, takes 20 years off, and now makes a movie a year or something like that. He's banging them out one is after he? the other. Yeah. yeah. And no one's going to them. I mean, that's the thing. Like, song to song, nobody saw it. And even though, like, Christian, uh, you know, uh, Ryan Gosling, uh, Natalie Portman was in that one. And I haven't even heard of it. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. It actually speaks to a conversation that was really uh, kind of a revelation for me yesterday that I'd sort of been circling around in my own life and, and, and Guy articulated in a way that I thought, oh, that's, that's an essential truth. How we tend to hit the turbo button at around 45 because yeah. you start to really start it becomes clear that there's going to be an end it happened to me yeah, yeah and yeah, so yeah. now we gotta we gotta kick it up a notch because yeah. there's a few stories left in us that we want to tell well, or whatever and that's terribly liberating and simultaneously exciting because there's nothing I mean I can see the curse of directors wanting to be cool yeah right and wanting to be respected by their peers it's a curse because it tethers you to the opinion of others, obviously. And to jump, and it's part of the reason why I'm jumping from genre to genre at the moment, is not to be because I'm subject to everyone else by the influences of everyone else, but to try and just keep moving and throw yourself into genres that are exciting and challenging for you. But here's another thing. I'm not sure what film I, a filmmaker I respect more. The untalented filmmaker that is tenacious and keeps making films 
or the talented filmmaker that doesn't force himself into making films. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm uh, the jury's out on which one I, I respect uh, more. Yeah, absolutely. Edward Jr., apparently the worst filmmaker in the world. I admire that guy. I've had plenty of films because he never gave up. Right. That guy, you could not stop him from Oof. making films. They're hard to watch, but uh -huh. I. He, yeah, you, but I'm with you. I'm yeah. with you. That in itself is a whole category of respect, yeah. and. You know, we're in the business of respecting. Yeah. So I, I, when I see someone that's as tenacious as that, and there's several filmmakers I can mention to you now, we're all have a good snigger at. I go, Jesus, but those cats are still working, yeah. mm -hmm. and they're not talented. Mm. How are they doing it? Right. It's rather spectacular. Right. And I can name several talented filmmakers yeah. you right now, which will go, ooh, yeah, yeah. how many movies have they made? Yeah, yeah. And I can't help but feel as though they're in prison by their own fear of judgment of everyone else. Oh, what happens if it's not as respected as the last one? Well, the other guys are just liberated. I'm moving forward, They're brother. Yeah. Mm. That was interesting, me. by the way. Yeah, yeah, thank you, <laughs> listen, thank you so much. No, and, I uh, listen, it. I know it's a bit of work doing this, but I appreciate no, it. No, no, yeah, well, yeah, I yeah, tell yeah. you, that was very interesting. Oh, thank you, thank yeah. you. Thanks, guys. I feel more satisfied now. I, I really did, coming <laughs> out of your interview, I felt like, oh man, that's a serious cat, and yeah. we really just fucked around for four minutes, so All I'm right, glad that we, we got into great. some of the nitty gritty there. We got into, we'll do it again. That was Guy Ritchie and Charlie Hunt, and we talked about lots of stuff, including what it's like to be on the firing end of being asked a lot of questions that sometimes, frankly, you're not all that interested in answering. I get it. I've done this for a very long time. I get why people sometimes feel a bit beaten down by the process. Anyway, thanks to Guy Ritchie, thanks to Charlie Hunnam. Next up, Chris Buck. Now, he is a Canadian photographer who is based in New York and has been for 30 years or so. His clients include Google, Xerox, Old Spice, Dodge, uh, GQ, The New Yorker, The Guardian Weekend. He's won so many awards we can't go into it all. His second book, Easy, is a 30-year portrait retrospective. Uh, it's in stores right now, wherever you get fine art books, you can find this. Uh, enjoy this conversation. I love talking to Chris Buck. He's open, he's interesting, and he really cares about the idea of capturing interesting images on film, or I guess now in a camera filled with pixels and I don't know, however that works. Anyway, he really cares about the image. And uh, I really enjoy my conversations with him. Here's Chris Buck talking about uneasy and lots of other things. Let's go back to the beginnings, though. The beginnings of your interest in photography. Your dad was, and I'm using uh, air quotes, in the film business. He literally worked for Kodak, right? Yes. In fact, actually, I, I worked at Kodak, you know, as a summer job for a few years. And one year... Um, the one that's most memorable to me was the year that I worked in the same building as my father. And um, it was kind of perfect. He was the manager of the whole building, and I was the guy who cleaned the toilets. <laughs> <laughs> the circle had closed, Except I guess. It was perfect. <laughs> uh, but yeah, no, he was actually the film coding building. And, you know, occasionally I get to go in to the back, the dark areas to, well, it wouldn't, it wouldn't be seen much because yeah. it's black, but it was like, it was amazing. I mean, occasionally they have the lights on for cleaning and just, you know, it was just film everywhere. It was crazy. My my, my father's background was as a, a chemical engineer. Right. So that's how he ended up there. But do you think that there's a straight line from that to your interest in photography? Or do you think that even without that, that your love of the visual arts would have blossomed somehow? Well, certainly my, the only thing I was good at as a kid was doing art. Like right. the only you know, class or whatever in studies, 
I, I had any real exceptional skill was was art class. So certainly my aim from the beginning was to be in the arts in some way. In high school, I kind of discovered commercial art, mm-hmm. um, advertising and magazines and such. And, you know, it just, the light went off and I'm like, that's where I want to work. The actual connection with photography per se really happened more later. I actually applied, um, you know, it was Kim time to apply for college. I applied to OCA, Ontario College right. of Art, and also... Um, U of T and Ryerson and um, uh, OCA did not accept me but Ryerson was my second choice and that's where I went and it's, that's probably why I'm a photographer I'm more than anything I mean obviously the, connect, <laughs> the connection to my father obviously makes sense you yeah. know I think that you know when I see children of musicians or children of actors become actors it, it always is sort of a bit eye rolling but it, it kind of makes sense because that's what they're familiar with mm-hmm. you know and you know, my father wasn't necessarily a creative person. My mother was more that that figure. But um, but he but because photography was around, you know, it's kind of in our blood. Like, you know, we I I went to Kodak a lot as a kid. You know, yeah. for the Christmas party and whatever. And you know, a lot of my father's friends were his coworkers. So it just was, it was just a very normal thing. I think for a lot of young people, photography is a sort of daunting technical sort of thing. But um, but for me, it wasn't just because. It's just what my dad did, you mm-hmm. know, it was very ordinary. Do you now uh, rue the, the the end of film? People don't really use film anymore. No, and, I, you know, it was a real struggle for about, you know, three or four years mm-hmm. where trying to figure out what my transition would be. I knew, I knew it would happen at some point, uh, but I don't know. I fought it for a long time, uh, but it, you know... The, the trick for me was getting a medium format camera, which won't, probably won't mean much yeah. to your listeners, but essentially was getting like a couple steps up in quality right. meant that I could transition without a loss in quality. I'm speaking with Chris Buck. His book, Uneasy, is a collection of photographs from the last 30 years, beautiful photographs, everyone from Donald Trump to Barack Obama, to Jay-Z, to everybody's in this book. We're going we're gonna to get to uh, some of those stories. Uh, every picture tells a story, and I want to find out some of those stories in uh, just a little while. So you go to Ryerson. You're studying photography there. This would have been in the 80s. There was a big club scene in Toronto that was uh, just bursting with live music. I was there for it. We're sitting not too far probably from the streets that you used to to hang out, the Beverly Tavern over here, the Cameron House just down the road where bands played. And you, the, the thing that was amazing about those years for me, and, and I, I get a sense that maybe for you too, but you can tell me, is that you would go see these bands and then you could hang out with them afterwards. And it didn't matter whether they were touring in from out of town or whatever. Generally speaking, at the bar, at the back of the room, at the Beverly Tavern, you could probably hang out with the band. And in your case, take pictures of them as well. Well, the funny thing is that when I guess I would be on perhaps my last year of high school, I worked at Roy Thompson Hall the the year it opened. And one of my coworkers was Margot Timmons. Oh, wow. From from, the Cowboy Junkies. From the Cowboy Junkies. And... We became friends, and you know, she, you know, she knew music and was very interested in music, and so I'd often, you know, she was a little older than maybe maybe a couple of years, mm-hmm. so I we talk about this stuff, and one time I asked her advice, you know, I said I want to get into photographing bands and and popular culture, and you know, can you give me a, a suggestion? And she said, um, you know, you should really photograph local bands. You know, they they're here, they're accessible, they. Um, you know, they need pictures, and you know they'll appreciate it. And it was great advice. The one thing that she miscalculated was that they didn't really appreciate it. They're kind of 
they're like local rock stars, so they're kind of right. arrogant and difficult. <laughs> but it was like the perfect start because, you know, it was never like I had the gradual transition with like, you know, easy, keen subjects right. and then and then moved into the difficult ones. They've like always been difficult. <laughs> <laughs> and in what ways were they difficult? Just, you know, very careful about their carefully crafted image? I think that that scene, though, you know, so so for me, the local music scene was probably like eighty three through eighty five was mm -hmm. when I was really deeply involved in the local scene. Um, you know, the groups I photographed and became friends with were like Sturm Group, yeah. um, Words of Full Cuckoos, um, Believer's Voice of Victory, and they were. Um, and so there was a there's a. I mean, Sturm Group were the ones I photographed first, and you know they were kind of local rock stars, yeah. and you know they they might have been only like a year or two older than me, but they kind of treated me like a kid, <laughs> and you know like I you know they I was lucky to be photographing them, and so you know it was um, it was kind of a little challenging, but you know that that's good, like it's a good in a way it was a perfect transition in. Do you think? Uh, that then, if that hadn't worked out or if you had not been able to deal with that, would you have put the camera down and walked away? I don't know. You know it's funny. It's, it's a question that's come up a lot lately, like how do you manage failure? Yeah. I think I think the arrogance of youth is very important, and yeah. I think that you, you're you able to, if, if, if you can process the, the challenges and the failures, then you'll be fine. You know, I, I read somewhere some something about how Successful people fail the most, yeah. and it, it really rings true for me that you people who are successful tend to be risk takers, and you take risks, and when you take risks, you fail, and you don't fail all the time, of course, but you fail plenty, and you you kind of it just becomes part of the process. And I think that's something I don't know. I, at some point, it also becomes a thing of like I can do this, or I can work in an office, like. Mm -hmm. This humiliation may be a little better than that humiliation. I mean, nothing wrong with office work. Yeah. It just wasn't for me. Yeah, it wasn't for me either. I'm speaking with Chris Buck. Uh, his book is called Uneasy, a uh, beautiful collection of photographs. Uh, interesting about failure because if you don't put yourself out there, you, you never get to take the next step. And I think that a lot of people uh, become so afraid of rejection or failure that they just don't and then wonder why they're sort of stuck spinning their wheels a little bit. I think a big part of it is having this belief, like, I, I almost feel like I'm making my work for the future. Mm -hmm. uh, even if you look through Uneasy, through the retrospective book, you know, like the first 10, 15 years, like, really you know, almost no one cared, you know, like outside of my immediate circle yeah, yeah. of peers or friends or whatever. And, you know, you have to believe at some point someone's going to want to see this. And even the work I make now, I feel like, you know, sometimes people get it, sometimes they don't. And I'm like, yeah, eventually you'll you'll get it, you know, which is arrogant. But, you know, I think to get through the challenges, you have to have a little bit of that. Where was your first photograph published? I think, I mean, it's not very interesting. I think <laughs> literally it was like in the school newspaper, right. you know, like in high school. Was it significant for you, though? No, because it's a, I think it was a picture of like the pool or something. Like you know, it wasn't. He was like, "We need a picture of this." Yeah, you know, go take a picture of the yeah. of the football field. Well, and then what was the first picture to get published that was significant to you? That's a great question. It probably was the pictures of Sturm Group I did for yeah. like a local fanzine. You know, uh, it was called Sounds from the Streets, and yeah. it was just you know, it was a real 
photo shoot with a band yeah. and it mattered to me and they ran a bunch of pictures and they were the client was very happy in fact the guy who did this fanzine he went on to found nerve which mm. was a weekly uh, a monthly music paper in the mid 80s yeah. and uh he found it with uh, it was a dave dave mcintosh with nancy lanthier and it kind of grew out of the eye opener at ryerson and so because i was there and i knew him i ended up doing a bunch of pictures and a few, wrote a few stories and became their photo editor for a year and a half. And that was a great experience too and really helped me to understand the business. And, you know, a lot of those experiences early on were also professional experiences. Right. In a way, a lot of my early shoots that are in the book were not done on assignment for nerve. They're more kind of self-assigned or just shoots I scra scraped together or whatever. But, um, but the professional experience of having an assignment and going to, have, going to have to do it and deliver it and, you know, it has to meet a certain standard on, and I have to show up on time and all that stuff was just as important. Yeah. So we're kind of at the point in your story where you're starting to work professionally. You're, you're, uh, you're in Toronto, you're working for Nerve Magazine. When did the move to New York happen? So what happened? And why? Well, it was sort of a funny accident, really. I, after I graduated college, I did that thing you're supposed to do when you finish college, which is go on a trip. Right. So a friend and I booked a trip. We went to the two places we could get free accommodation because that's what college students do. Yeah. So we went to New York and San Francisco. <laughs> and when we went to New York, I just thought, well, I'll bring my portfolio. I just made it as my final term project. And I brought my, you know, whatever, like scrappy portfolio, a mix of portraits and live photos and some press conference pictures and took it to New York and went around. You know, went to Spin, Rolling Stone, Esquire, Vanity Fair, you know, everywhere, anywhere they'd see me. And uh, this is back when those magazines all would have had big offices, right? You know, sort of in Midtown somewhere, big, impressive looking offices, right? Exactly. It was, it was, it was like May of 87. I literally had finished college like a week before. And my poor friend, like, had to entertain himself while I <laughs> did these meetings. Because once I called people, they would, you know, they, they were very nice with me dropping off my book or you see me in person. The first person I saw was in a magazine called. I guess it was Star Hits or some you know, pop magazine. Yeah, yeah. And he opened my book to the first picture, which is the first picture in Uneasy, John Cale. Yeah. And he said, hey, Frank, this guy's actually good. Come over here. <laughs> and I was like, wow, like, you know, there's thousands of photographers here and he thinks I'm good. And he actually called him the Village Voice, like on the spot. And he made an appointment for me at The Voice. Wow. Yeah. And sent me over there, like, you know, the next day or whatever. And... That was the kind of reception I got. People were very open. They're very interested. Uh, I mean, you know, some of the magazines I saw still don't hire me. Like, I still don't work for Vanity Fair. Right. But, you know, they saw me then, and they're very nice. And, you know, it just, people were very encouraging. And I, what the weird thing is I came back to Toronto, and I hadn't really had a chance to show my work around yet. So I called Toronto Life, you know, really one of the only games in town. And yeah. they're like, you know, great, send over your tear sheets. And I'm, well, I just finished college, so I don't really have any tear sheets. Well, great, send them over when you have them. And I'm like, now, oh, okay. And that's interesting. So in Canada, is, is there a difference here between the way that, that uh, Americans and Canadians treated you? I think the way, I think the way I saw it at the time was there was more of a kind of, uh, okay, kid, pay your dues, right. and then we'll, we'll give you a shot. Whereas I think New York, maybe being more of an international market, and maybe part of the American mentality, which is also just more, um, I don't know, entrepreneurial yep. or a little uh, scrappier, probably yeah, too, right? And just kind of like you don't know, you never know where it's going to come from, uh, kind of attitude, you know. And they just want like they want to, 
if, if just a star to be discovered, they want to make sure they discover them right. and not that, you know, their competitor does. So, so yeah, so I, you know, I talked to my mentor and like, you know, Ryerson professor Dave Heath, and I asked him about it and he had actually, he had worked in New York at, at, at one time as well. And so he, he very much encouraged me and, and I was like, okay, cool. Like I'll, I'll build some kind of career here, get some momentum, then take that to New York. And he said, that won't work. <laughs> he said, you'll go to New York and you'll start on the bottom. Yeah. So he said, get there as soon as you can. So I actually, I worked at another magazine, Graffiti, uh, which actually the offices were around the corner from yeah. here. I worked at Graffiti for a year as their photo editor, kind of procrastinating, kind of trying to figure out, okay, can I do this? And then at the end of that one year, I was like, okay, I'm going to give it a go. And I, you know, I worked for a couple of years in Toronto, kind of saving some money, trying to build my portfolio, build my skills a little bit before I took that to New York. And New York at the time uh, wasn't quite having the renaissance that it is right now in terms of, you know, it's not uh, now they they talk about the Disneyfication of Times Square, all that kind of stuff. It was a little scrappier back then. It was. But, you know, I visited New York first in 82 yeah. with my family and even then, they're talking about it getting better. Right. And you remember, like, we saw a subway car with graffiti, so yeah. we got our cameras out <laughs> and took pictures. You know, that was 82, and, you know, New York stayed pretty damn scrappy through the 80s. And so when I moved there in 1990, it didn't seem like that big a deal. Like, it right. seemed like it was going in the right direction. Uh, you know, and it, it got better after that. You know, with Giuliani, who I didn't really like as a mayor, but he did make it more livable. Um so yeah, I mean, you know, whatever. It, You've it, lived there for a long time. Did he did he make it more livable and better, or did he make it more livable and less fun? That's the argument, right? That's what everybody says. It's still plenty fun. I mean, yeah. let, there's a residue of fun. I, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, it's still New York. Yeah, I think it's still at least for now. It still has that energy. Um, it definitely is more livable. I mean, I have a seven year old daughter, and I'm totally comfortable being in New York with her. Yeah. Uh, I think that. And you live in Manhattan, right? I think yeah. the one real bad thing is that it used to be like the kids would move to New York, young people would move to New York, and their parents would cry and beg them not to go. Right. And now they send them there. Right. <laughs> and so there was a way, there was kind of a filter before that kind of keep out the riffraff. Yeah. And now, you know, it's because it's, I think that's really about the crime. We, if we want to get rid of all the, like, you know, whatever, good-for-nothing kids, we have to raise the crime rate, right. and then <laughs> that, that will keep them out. That's right, because parents won't send them anymore. <laughs> uh, we've just got about a minute left in this segment. Uh, when we come back, we're going to talk about some of the specific shoots that, that people can uh, can see the results of uh, in the book. But uh, So you're living in New York now. You've been there for about 26, 27 years now. Um do you think that the career that you have there now would have been possible here? You've got 40 seconds. <laughs> no? Okay, yeah. sorry. I'll, I'll use... Well, the thing is, my reason for moving there, aside from, like, opportunities in the sense of, like, an interested, yeah. you know, clients, was that that's where celebrities were. I mean, right. if a celebrity came to Toronto, they're going to have the top photographer in Toronto shoot them, and that wasn't me. Yeah. And so, you know, I... And then, then not that many come through at any given time. In New York, it's a hub of culture and media. And so there's people coming through all the time. You know, even if they're from London or wherever, you know, they're coming through New York. Jimmy Fallon. You've got some really cool pictures of Jimmy Fallon in this. Uh, tell me, I guess, when you go into a shoot with someone like Jimmy Fallon, do they drive the shoot? Do they say, you know what I want to do is blah, 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 blah? Or do you go in with a dozen ideas and see which ones stick? 
I, I maybe once or twice the subjects come with a, a strong idea. It's almost always driven by the photographer. Yeah. And I learned that early on. It was a really hard lesson. Yeah, I went to a shoot with a famous musician and they just stood there. Because I didn't tell them to do anything, you know. I thought they're just gonna like show up and be awesome right. and like, you know, deliver their rock star energy and do cool stuff. And they just stood there waiting for me to tell them what to do. And did you end up telling them what to do or no? No, I just like took bad pictures <laughs> and failed. You know, yeah. I think that it's it was a great lesson for me in okay, I need to be in the driver's seat here. Yeah. And you know, I work with very very you know celebrated people. You know, think of it this way. Even if I'm shooting a comedian, like Steve Martin, he's a busy man. He's not going to be thinking of ideas for my photo yeah, shoot or, yeah. you know, I mean, I guess he's in the picture. But what ends up happening is I come up with ideas. I pitch some of them to the magazine. The ones they like, they might pitch on to the publicist for the right. subject. So the way it's kind of done is I'll usually hold back a few ideas. If they're simple, just about a gesture or something like that, I'll just not even tell the magazine. And right. if I want to do it, I'll try it on set. Right. Ideas that are a little more complex, I will pass by the magazine, make sure that they're on board or, you know, make sure that it's the direction they want to go in. And that in. they'll pay for it. And they'll, yeah, exactly. Well, yeah. I mean, early on, I would actually, I'm just telling that, that Billy Joel picture, I rented that applause sign. Right. Uh, you know, I didn't even tell the magazine. I just, I just like, you know, I just thought, well, I'll just get it, you know. And, yeah, and you end up losing money on the well, shoot. I, I, <laughs> well, if, if they like the picture, they'll pay for the yeah, prop, yeah. you know. Right. But uh, what, so what ends up happening is then... The publicist vets the ideas, maybe with the subject or, or not. And then and then once then once we're on set and I'm there with Steve Martin, then I'm uh, we talk more about the idea right. and then he essentially, you know, performs it. So he's kind of he's collaborating, but only that last stage when he's in front of the camera. So you are a photographer and director in a lot of yeah, ways. Of course, yeah, of course. Yeah. yeah. Is it harder now to get ideas that stand out? There are so many uh, venues for these photographs. I mean, you know, there are a million magazines still. There's newspapers online. We're inundated with images every single day. Um, and often not as carefully vetted images as you might want, you know, we're just sort of, there's like a, a, there's a lot of eye pollution out there in terms of that. Is it harder to come up with a celebrity portrait that is memorable that people will uh, go to? I think a lot of the pictures that you see in that kind of like the, the your, you know, the feed of your life yeah. are often either visual, like they're pretty or they're, or they're like a funny idea, but mm -hmm. not not very visual. Right. I think in a way professionals, you know, we we at our best combine them. Mm -hmm. I think also that, you know, we do stuff on demand. We used to do a great picture on demand right. in a way that like it's not like we're just out there observing and we catch stuff, you know, and we do that too. But yeah. you know, I don't know. I mean I think I think the best ideas still come from the messed up parts of you, you know, your like quirks and you know, your issues. You put your you put your issues in the pictures; they'll be interesting. So, talk about Jimmy Fallon's where we started with all this. So it, he he just had kids, and you thought babies. Tell right. me about so that. So, I I roped in a friend who had just had their second child, and I asked her like, "Would you bring your baby?" Because her baby was maybe a month older than the baby uh, that his wife and him had just adopted, and so. 
the the publicist approved it. And the crazy thing is we went in and I immediately, I was so excited for the baby. I wanted to have the baby with him right away. And they said, well, why don't we wait? Because if the baby has an accident or something, we don't want to, that will just kind of end the shoot quick. Yeah, yeah. And I was like, yeah, good point. So we did that stuff first. And then I was, you know, I want to get back to the baby. So my friend brings over the baby and I had her take the diaper off and pass the baby to Jimmy. And they're like, it's not going to wear a diaper? Uh. I'm like, well, no, but it, you knew that. That's why you said we shouldn't, yeah. you know. And I was like, yeah, like, this is awesome. Let's have some fun. <laughs> yeah. I hand the, So she hands the baby to Jimmy. And within 30 seconds, the baby pees all <laughs> over his shirt and pants, like, everywhere. And Jimmy, like, right away is, like, passing the baby back. And I'm like, oh, no. Yeah. You hold the baby and you smile because you're enjoying this. <laughs> <laughs> well, you you direct people in that way. You told Barack Obama to spit out his gum. Yeah. Well, I, I asked I asked him if he was chewing gum and he, <laughs> I think he swallowed it. <laughs> but that was at the White House, right? Oh yeah. How difficult was that shoot, just in terms of security and all that stuff? Yeah, they most of the stuff done ahead of time. Yeah. You give your social security number and your Birth, date of birth and all that stuff, and they vet you. Yeah. And then, what, then when you go to the White House, they they kind of all the people, your me and my crew are taken aside, and then they go through all my bags with dogs and all that. Right. And we actually stood out in the cold, like in January in DC, <laughs> you know, while they went through our bags. And then and then after that, they kind of left us alone because you know we've been personally vetted and our bags have been vetted, right. so they knew we were fine and we had no weapons or whatever. And so. Once we're in, it's not like I'm shooting and the Secret Service guy is next to me being like, don't shoot that shot, you know? Right, right, right. <laughs> in in the book, Uneasy, I'm speaking with Chris Buck, a legendary photographer with a beautiful book right now called Uneasy that you can find uh, online. Amazon will have it. It is sold wherever fine books are sold. Uh, check it out. Really beautiful photographs. One of my favorite photographs uh, in the book is the picture of Ice-T. And this is kind of the complete opposite of the Jimmy Fallon set uh, shoot, the, the Barack Obama vetting. This was kind of off the cuff, right? Yeah, that was at, um, what was the place called? The Masonic Temple? Yeah, yeah, the, yeah. Yeah, and, and that was where George uh, Strombolopoulos did his show for many years. Yeah. Yeah, so is that venue, and he was doing a show, I think he just done a sound check, and he came out, and, you know, I just asked, like, I'd like to take a picture, and just, I knew I'd only have, like, a minute. This is Ice-T, he'd just done a show, and you're like... I think he just done a sound check. A sound check. And so, because it was daytime, right. and he had this necklace with a gun on it, and I said, oh, would you put the, put the gun necklace in your teeth? <laughs> and he did it. I shot three frames, and then he, you know, I said thank you, and he walked off, and that's it. Did you know you had it? I... Uh, I mean, it looked cool. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I'm not one of those people who really knows when they have it. When I think I know, I'm, I'm usually wrong. <laughs> you know, when I feel like, oh, this is a real connection in this moment, and, and it ends up just being boring. Yeah. And so I think that uh, it's one of the reasons I shoot a lot, and I shoot a lot of different setups. I usually shoot three to five setups with any person. And how and, many photographs would that be? You know, it's going to vary. Like when I photographed Obama, you know, it was a four and a half minute shoot, but we did three setups. I think right. we maybe shot about 30 frames. Right. Uh, but, you know, in a two hour shoot, we'll shoot maybe 500 frames. 
I love that you had four and a half minutes. Four minutes, 22 seconds, 11 <laughs> milliseconds. That, well, I know that often when you're interviewing celebrities, it was, which is sort of on my end of the, of the business here, you're told, okay, you've got, and it's very specific. It's like, be here at 1018, and you've got them from 1018 to 102230, you know, that kind of thing. And, you know, often they, you stick to those times. Well, and the shoot with Obama, with the president, was it was booked about three weeks ahead. And you know all you know, all kinds of news happens yeah. in the meantime, yeah. and and then he showed up at like exactly on time, like two thirty five January sixteenth. Like yeah. he just walked in right <laughs> the exact moment. I mean, it just shows you how obviously it's a personality thing. Yeah. Like I think Bill Clinton was known for always being really late. George W. Bush was known for being early. So it's, it obviously it's just you know how they are. But yeah. Obama strikes me as being a very organized person. You've taken photographs of presidents before. He wasn't the president. Then maybe not even really thinking about being pro. He's probably always been thinking about it, but it wasn't on his agenda just yet. Tell me about taking photographs of Donald Trump. Well, the sh the shoot that's in the book is my second sitting with him, mm -hmm. and I've done three. And you know the the thing about him that I think really stands out is how different he is in person than he right. is uh, in his sort of public persona. This is what I hear from people. People like him personally. You meet him personally, and he's quite generous, apparently, and, and you know, funny and that sort of thing. That's not his public persona. And I was really surprised when I met him, too. Uh, it's, uh, it's unusual. Most people are some kind of version of their public selves right. when you meet them privately, whether it's a musician or an actor or even, like, a director. They're, they're sort of, you're, getting, you're getting, like, a version of that. And he wasn't. He was very, like, kind of, like... Soft-spoken, like as you say, funny, charming. I mean, he's a great salesman, and he really delivers. You know, uh, you know, I've met people who like vehemently hate him, and I'll mention this, and they'll be like, "Yeah, I get it." You know, like it's interesting how people will do. They do understand that. Well, he was also kind of the king of New York for a very long time, right? I guess. I mean, I'm not sure there's any one king of New York. I mean, you know, Lou, I would think Lou Reed would be or something. But well, it's funny. Lauren Michaels has a great quote where he says the reason that he loves living in New York is that no matter what room you're in, you're not the most important person in that room. It's really true, and it's one. I think it is one of the charms. I mean, I don't really like one-industry towns. Right. You know, it makes me anxious to be like Washington D.C. or Los Angeles, yeah. where it's, it's driven. It's just too singular, and I think it's. I don't know. It's very, kind of vaguely dehumanizing that right. you know, if you're not uh, an important person in a film in L.A., you you're kind of invisible. Mm -hmm. um, so, New York's great that way because you know, so there's like so many major industries there that. You know, someone who's in the top of finance, if you're in the fashion world, you don't care, you yeah. know. Um, and I think that's really cool. Anyways, uh, Trump, I mean, frankly, Trump was always considered kind of a bit of a joke. Mm -hmm. um, so I was surprised how, like, charming and, and kind of, he just has a nice way about him. And it's, I know it sounds kind of weird to say, but he's, he's kind of fun to be around. Well, And he knew what he was doing when he was in front of the camera with you. Isn't there a story that he, you were going to change a lens? So we were shooting him. So we were shooting him with a group of people. It was like a kind of conceptual shot about um, Donald Trump is everywhere. So we had a bunch of my friends and my wife's friends, and they're holding Donald Trump masks in front of their faces, and you know they're all wearing like suits and such. And so once we have this audience, Trump comes alive, and he's being really funny, and we're kind of exchanging little, you know, like we were shooting in the elevator, and he said, "Oh." What kind of lens is that? Is that a flat lens? I said, no, Mr. Trump, it's a, it's a wide lens. And he said, I think you should use a flat lens. 
are you trying to tell me how to do my job? <laughs> and he's like, oh, no, 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 no. And of course, I'm getting laughs. Yeah. He's getting laughs. So it's a really fun environment. We moved to the next setup. And I said, oh, Mr. Trump, you'll be so glad we're using a flat lens for this. And he leans forward and points to me and says, this is the one they'll use. And he was right. Yeah. See, he knows what he like. It, there, behind that that facade, I do think that there's a guy that does, on some levels, know what he's doing. That photograph, or one of those photographs, is your daughter's favorite photograph. She has it in her bedroom. Well, she no longer has it up. Really? I think okay. my 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 <laughs> wife persuaded us to to move it out of there. I think she just found it too disturbing. Right. Um, you know, I think for my daughter, it was more of like it was more of a cultural touch point than yeah. it was like her particularly admiring him or, or endorsing him I mean, endorsing funny, someone i was around and someone asked her why do you have that picture of donald trump and she said i couldn't believe it she said something like i respect the office <laughs> how old is she seven <laughs> but you know i'm i mean i have to think that's i don't think i've ever said that phrase in front of her yeah, yeah. but i think it's you know she's she gets that from me like i'm obsessed with presidential history right. she probably has four books about presidents for like books for kids right. and you know she'll she'll like rhyme off facts about president washington like it's weird you know <laughs> <laughs> at seven years old uh talk about mickey rourke a little bit mickey rourke has a, a portrait in the book i once interviewed mickey rourke and i said he was wearing this wild colored shirt and i said that uh, that's a that's a crazy shirt you're wearing. He goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. I had it made for me. I can't remember the guy's name. Why don't you look at the tag? And I had to move Mickey Rock's hair and reach down the back of his shirt to look at the tag of the guy that had made the shirt for him. And so, uh, you know, he was uh, uh, unpredictable. I think is probably fair to say. Yeah, I think he's a unique personality for sure. I, mean, I spent a lot of time with him. And this was probably like maybe 2002. Right. So it's sort of the beginning of his comeback. Yeah. Uh, you know, because he left the business to do boxing. Mm -hmm. Great choice for a leading man. Yeah, exactly. You know, be yeah. punched in the face for a living. Uh, but uh, he's just coming back and, you know, he was very relaxed, very happy to be there. I mean, it was strange. It was a strange space to be in, you yeah. know. Um, and I wasn't like a particular fan, so it was actually kind of easy in a way. Like, I was really focused on my assignment and fulfilling my obligations to my client. And, like, I wasn't sort of in awe of him. Right. So that was probably to my advantage. I'm speaking with Chris Buck. The book is called Uneasy. It's in bookstores right now. Beautiful collection of his work. Philip Seymour Hoffman. Uh, the late, great Philip Seymour Hoffman uh, is someone that you took photographs of. Tell me a little bit about working with him. He's just a real super nice guy, like mm -hmm. really just very decent, you know, thoughtful. Um, he was, you know, actors are kind of funny because even though they make their living, you know, being in front of a camera, yeah. they often are, are anxious in front of a still camera. I think maybe because they're playing themselves and they became an actor to not be themselves. Yep. And... Uh, but he was great. I mean, he was very open. You know, the first session I did with him, because I, I ran into him and shot with him multiple times after that, he would often say, like, that's one of my favorites, one of my favorite sessions I've ever done. Wow. And it was very creative. And, like, we tried all kinds of crazy stuff. And I think he loved it, you know. Yeah, he was, uh, he was certainly in his professional life pushed the envelope. And I, I love that he would jump back and forth between doing you know, a Mission Impossible movie and then go do a play off-Broadway in New York. And then, you know, it's just a, such a, 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 a great kind of roaming creative spirit. Absolutely. And I think really, yeah, I, it's funny because there is a thing with people like that that they 
are really open. And people always often ask me, how do you get people to do stuff? Mm-hmm. And I think that's what I really tap into is if these people are open, they're risk takers, even people in politics or business, they, they get there because they take chances. We were talking about this earlier and that the sometimes it doesn't work, but when it does work, it, it, it seems to shine twice as brightly. Uh, Lena Dunham is someone who is, uh, I think, fairly controversial. Oftentimes, you know, things uh, come up, but Girls has just ended now. Uh, you've uh, You've worked with her. Yeah, it was amazing. I mean, I don't agree with a lot of things she says or, you know, but I found her a a magnetic personality. I I love that she's out there Mm -hmm. and that she really puts it out there. And so it was super fun to photograph her. Actually, when she came in, I asked her, I kind of went through my different ideas with her. And I said, I want to do like a nude shot of you doing this. And she was like, I don't do that. And I'm thinking, you do that all the time. Yeah, you're. But she said, I... I do nude when I control it. And I thought that's fair. You know, she's an artist. You know, she's a creative person. You know, it's very, you know, it's very vulnerable to make yourself naked in front of a camera. So for her to do it when she is the, you know, producer or whatever, it totally made sense. Is it awkward to look someone in the face and say, okay, take your clothes off now. We're going to take some photographs. Oh, it's the most awkward thing ever. (laughs) But But it's worth it. You know, people will sometimes say to me, like, oh, my God, William Shatner, like, he's such a you know, strange, difficult personality. Yeah. How do you, aren't you totally afraid? I'm like, of course I'm afraid. I'm like, I'm absolutely terrified, but I'm more scared of my client. Right. <laughs> mortgage. There's always a mortgage to pay. Uh, Billy Joel, we talked about the applause sign. Was that early on in the in the career? Where, like you were still buying props? Well, I don't know. It always feels like it's, it always feels like it's still a struggle, yeah. which I think is actually really good. Yeah. Like I don't, I don't feel like I've arrived yet and I'm still working. I'm, I'm still getting there. So, but the Billy Joel thing was, that was like, I think 2001. So I've been in New York for like over 10 years already. Yeah. But uh, at some point I, I realized that the props were my friend and that as long as I didn't kind of overdo it, right. like one prop that's relatively straightforward or simple, it can just really make it. Part of it is it adds a little narrative element that just opens, you know, kind of asks questions. And the other thing is that um, I think it relaxes the subject. It yeah. get it gives them something to do. Uh, it's interesting you, you say that, you know, you don't feel you've quite arrived yet. Interviewed Ethan Hawke a couple of weeks ago, and he told me exactly the same thing. Uh, someone who, you know, has been famous since he was 19 years old, you know, Dead Poet Society. And he said, you know, when I was in the aftermath of that and was very successful, uh, he said, I didn't feel like a movie star. What went through my head is, what if I never get to do this again? And I think that's the thing that drives a lot of people. Absolutely. I mean, I'm a big fan of Frank Sinatra. And I think one of the things I admire about him is he never lost that hunger. And I think it's why he had such a long career. I mean, a lot of his later stuff, I think, is pretty terrible. Mm -hmm. But he was at least still reaching. And trying. And and as we say, if you don't reach and and, and fail, sometimes you don't get anywhere. And he wanted to remain contemporary. That's Chris Buck talking about his book, Uneasy and the art of taking a photograph. Now that you've heard him talking about his photographs of Barack Obama and Donald Trump and Jimmy Fallon and all those people, you'll start to notice the name Chris Buck on a lot of photographs that you see in GQ and The New Yorker and places like that. Keep an eye open for them. They will always entertain you. 
Well, that's it. That's all the time there is. I want to thank Guy Ritchie and Charlie Hunnam. I want to thank Chris Buck. Most of all, though, I want to thank you. I want to thank you for coming by to the House of Krauss every single week. We put a new show up every single Monday, so make sure that you check back with us often. You never know who's going to stop by for a visit, and who knows, it just might end up being one of your favorite people.